Hello again, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. My name is Jeff Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional practice within the recovery field. This podcast is in furtherance of that mission, and on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. We know that substance use disorders are strongly associated with deaths by suicide, but that SUD treatment is also associated with a lower suicide risk. What we don't know, however, is whether substance use disorder counselors are sufficiently knowledgeable about suicide and whether they feel prepared and comfortable with treating suicidal clients. A 2019 study at the University of Washington produced a shocking revelation that challenged conventional wisdom, that confidence and readiness to work with suicidal clients were not improved by higher levels of education and longer lengths of experience, and that these factors also did not equate to fewer beliefs in suicide myths. Since education and general, uh, overall general experience as an SUD counselor cannot be relied upon to effectively treat suicidal clients, newer and specific training must be developed. Our guest today has experience in assessing suicide risk and treating suicidal individuals, both in mental health and substance use disorder treatment environments. Lisa Coates is a licensed clinical social worker who received her master's degree from the University of Connecticut School of Social Work and has 15 years of experience in mental health and substance use disorder recovery field. She currently works as the operations manager at Crystal Health Counseling Center, where I worked many, many years ago and was a social work intern. (laughs) And she has been a member of the Zero Suicide Learning Community and Advisory Board since October 2015 and became a certified QPR instructor in the March of 2017. She co-leads the Zero Suicide Task Force at Bristol Health to ensure that all employees have access to the QPR training, to standardize the risk risk assessment tool across every department at the hospital, and to continue to raise awareness and improve commitment to the need for all employees to be trained in suicide awareness and prevention. Most recently, she's my colleague on the Mayor's Opioid Task Force in the City of Bristol and works with other city partners to develop the City of Bristol Recovery Alliance which helps to reduce barriers to treatment and provide police officers the opportunity to offer treatment instead of arrest, which we just got some good news about last week at the last meeting that officers were able to do that. Yes. Yes. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. (laughs) I'd like to start out with something I mentioned in the intro about overall level of education and length of experience does not equate with readiness and comfort in treating suicidal clients. And we know that that's an issue for substance use disorder clinicians, regardless of, of level of education. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that some of the myths are, are still believed. What do you, you know, think that that's attributed to? So it's actually, it's interesting because um, the state is actually working on mandating some sort of suicide prevention um, treatment education um, for any licensed professional, because right now there aren't any standardized um, expectations for someone who's licensed. So anyone can go into the mental health field, into substance use counseling field, um, and have to treat people who are at high risk, however, never be required to do any sort of specific suicide prevention awareness training. Um, And so there are a lot of studies out there that say that maybe 
20% of all professionals really have solid suicide prevention training. And yet we're sending everyone who's suicidal um, or at risk for death by overdose to professionals who, you know, know how to talk to someone and, and, and educate them, but don't have the specific skill set to truly get someone into the right place in the right frame of mind. So, And I know from working uh, in the emergency room as a crisis worker and for uh, Wheeler's mobile crisis team in the past, people that we would see that, that were referred to us as an immediate danger weren't necessarily an immediate danger. Um, that perhaps some prevention and some knowledge of, of screening techniques may have helped um, yeah. keep some people out of the ER that didn't need to be, because it can be a traumatic experience for somebody who's not really at, at that level. Absolutely. Someone who's already feeling like they have nothing left to live for, incredibly hopeless, incredibly depressed, um, to then go through a high pace, high volume environment like the emergency room where you still have to get medically cleared. So a lot of times that means someone um, has to go through getting disrobed and evaluated. And it's like, I'm here because for emotional and behavioral health stuff, not for physical, but it's, it's a one size fits all entrance into that world. So um, yeah, it can be extremely traumatic. One of the things that I've kind of learned over the years, um, and it strikes me as as really a problem for the substance disorder field, is non-licensed individuals and licensed individuals. The idea of screening versus assessment. Mm -hmm. I don't think in many cases that's made especially clear that you can do, if you're not licensed, you can do a screening to determine a need for an assessment. Uh, that somebody who's doing a screening doesn't have the responsibility of an assessment. I think right. that that it gets confusing for people. You're absolutely right. I um, Here at the hospital, we've gone to great lengths to make sure that everyone's screened for suicide risk. And in doing that, we screen people at many different points of entry. And then we had to develop our internal protocol for if they screen positive. And so that was interesting in and of itself because people were concerned about if they screen positive, am I then, you know, liable for what happens to the person? And um, the big response is no, we're actually more responsible and liable if the person, if we don't ask at all, if we have all these risk factors and then we're not asking the question because we don't know how to, or we're not comfortable with it, it actually opens up our liability much more than simply screening and then asking for a consult to do with a full assessment. So um, yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. And I like to see that the screening is done throughout the hospital. I know that when I go to my primary care provider, her medical assistant will do the screening. And I like that it's, it's routine. Yeah. Um, now certainly that individual, if I answered, you know, positively to it would get somebody else to assist and they even have a social worker in there. Um, but I like that it's part of, of the, the assessment. I mean, the screening process before you even see your physician. That's wonderful. That's, yes, it's working the way it's supposed to. That's always good to hear. NAMI, <laughs> <laughs> um, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, they identified five common myths about suicide, all of which are really pretty easily debunked. And there are more, but these are, uh, are five of the main ones. And, uh, I, you know, I'll go through them and then I like to just kind of talk about them. Uh, sure. Number one, suicide only affects individuals with a mental health condition. 
Number two, once an individual is suicidal, he or she will always remain suicidal. Most suicides happen suddenly without warning. Number four is people who die by suicide are selfish and take the easy way out. And I'm going to have to keep my mouth shut on that one. Because mm, I get a little worked up. Okay, yes, yes. <laughs> Good. I like it. We'll talk about it. And talking about suicide will lead to and encourage suicide. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about those a little. Let's talk a little about the first one. Suicide affects individuals, uh, only those with mental health conditions. Um, so, uh, yes, absolutely. There's a lot of people who believe that. However, there's uh, one statistic out there that says that 46% of those who die by suicide had a known mental health condition. That means that 54% of the people who are dying by suicide are not actively diagnosed with any type of mental health condition. Um, so that's more than half of the people that are dying by suicide. I think that myth affects a lot of those um, that work in the substance use disorder field, thinking that, um, well, it's beyond what I can do if this individual has a mental health condition, instead of doing some of the prevention stuff that we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. Um, yeah. Yeah, most of the people that I would assess never had a history uh, right. of any mental illness, or this was a new experience for them, uh, and, and, so, and it scared them. Absolutely, and and the fact is, is that once people are trying to get help, you know, simple therapy, safety plans, the medication to help with the depression can really save their life, um, and sobriety in addition to that will help them. But once people get sober, it opens up all of the things that perhaps they've been using substances to not address. And so it really is a smart idea to look at both and not just one or the other. The second one, once an individual is suicidal, he or she will always remain suicidal. See, this one makes me really sad because um, many people think that. And I think when people work in the um, field, they feel overwhelmed with people who are always talking about suicide. Um, but the fact is that people are not always suicidal. They go through moments in their life where they feel at increased risk for suicide because things have gotten very overwhelming and perhaps they feel like that's the only way out. However, they have many, you know, most people have a suicidal, an episode of feeling like they need to take their life to fix their problems. But if they get the right help in that moment, they can be nev never be suicidal again. So they can live a life of happiness and recovery and, you know, ups and downs, however, never reach that critical point again. So um, it's really with really changing your environment, getting the right people on board. You can absolutely make those changes and, and not get back there. And, and we're not talking about absolutes because when we look at the 46% who have a, a diagnosable uh, mental health condition, there may be those that suicidality is a state of mind. Correct. But that's not the overwhelming thing. And they're saying, and this myth is saying that everybody walks around that's ever had a suicidal ideation of, of any kind is in a constant state of suicidality. And that's not true. There are some. Yeah. And most of the individuals through my years of working in treatment that did have that that sense of suicidality coped with it incredibly well. Mm -hmm. Yes. It didn't it didn't create distress. Yes, it was um it's funny because my early years as a therapist, um, I had a patient who was very always and she explained her thoughts of suicide like them being at different varying lengths 
away from her intention. So she kind of drew it out on a piece of paper as most days they're far away from her. However, some days they inch closer and closer. And then she built an internal recognition system basically that says, if it gets to this point, I need to do something serious about it. I need to get help. I need to do whatever. Um, But I loved that visual ability to kind of understand her specific risk for suicide and how she's gotten very comfortable with talking about it and sharing some of that insight with her peers who are terrified of their thoughts of suicide. Um, It was a really nice way of kind of normalizing that for her. I remember working with a gentleman who said he was always had that in the back of his mind and it was comforting for him to have it there. He had no intent or plan, but he, when it got really bad, he knew that he had the first thought would be, well, I always have this way out, but I don't need to go there. And I thought that was, uh, I wouldn't recommend that as a coping skill for many, but it really worked for this individual because he knew himself. Absolutely. And so as we're talking about this, I also am thinking about the other side of this, that if we always think like the risk of us believing this is that if we think that anyone who is talking to us about suicide is always suicidal, it means that we don't have to act right now or that our interventions right now don't really matter. And I think that we have to have a sense of urgency. And so myths like this kind of make us numb to people who are at risk for suicide. And that's really could be deadly for our population. Uh, The third one is saying most suicides happen suddenly without warning. Mm. I don't know too many cases from my clinical experience in the past, and I've been doing this since 1988. Um, Yeah, you can roll enough (laughs) with the eye roll and the the eyebrows. (laughs) But I can't think of really... um, situations, maybe then once or twice in the emergency room, that that's the case at all. Right. And and so I think people say this because hindsight is always 2020. So we can see a lot clearer looking back at someone's life about things. But it also as the people who are left from someone who has has died by suicide, it makes us feel a little bit better that maybe we didn't see it coming. Um, I really believe that our community and our is not well versed at assessing for suicide risk so we don't really understand the warning signs um, and if we had much more suicide prevention work out there and trainings then we would be able to catch it earlier and intervene earlier and we would see it coming a lot more because you're absolutely right it does not happen out of nowhere there's um, I like to use the Anthony Bourdain example um, where he died by suicide a year and a half ago now. Um, famous food critic, right? Had a perfect job. Everyone was just in awe of his life, right? Who wouldn't love to get paid to critique food all over the world? <laughs> um, but <clears throat> he died from suicide. And it was like, what? No one saw this coming. That is a really shocking event. But if we, there was an article that came out where it looked back at all of his writings um, and he, went on to one of his first writings, he talked about how he would die by suicide someday. And then he talked about how he would die by suicide from hanging from, and then he went on each article up to the point of him actually taking his life, um, where he pretty clearly told all of his audience that he was going to kill himself and in what way he was going to do it. 
again, hindsight is twenty twenty. but there's all of these subtexts that we could see if we were able to see and kind of not chalk it up to joking or being silly. It's like, did anyone ever really talk to him about it? Did anyone ever really say, are you okay, dude? And, and what can we help you out with? Um, so it's just, yeah, people are usually asking for help. They just don't know how to. It, it got me thinking as you were talking about um, Kurt Cobain, same mm-hmm. thing. If you listen to his music and listen to the lyrics, there were messages in there about his struggles. Yeah. It was very clear. Um, it, it's, you know, I think they, people just chalked it up to artistic genius, but he used his struggles uh, to explain what was going on with him. And, and he communicated to us in the only way he knew how to, you know, through his music. And that was the most authentic way he could. And, and yet it made for great music, but we weren't able to hear him as a person. This is the one I said, really, uh, I, I can get on a roll. Uh, People who die by suicide are selfish and take the easy way out. I can tell that bothers me significantly. Yeah. Because if you've talked to individuals with a level of suicidality, they really believe, and it's almost, uh, it follows a pattern, a, a, a rational pattern of thinking, that they think that's going to be better for everyone around them, hey, that they're no longer a burden. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think having the opportunity to hear people's, you know, darkest moments, we have that unique glimpse into people's worlds where we can see how they did have that path of events that, you know, they almost have us convinced that life is so terrible. And it's just, you know, sharing that grief and loss over where they thought they would be and where they are now. Um, But they also then are able to recover and and get through it. And um, that, they believe it's the most selfless act that they can actually remove themselves and and stop everyone around them from hurting. And so it's, it's very, I can see why that bothers you a lot because these people are struggling. They're not just having a great time. And then one day say, you know what, I'm going to just end it today. It's never like that. It's not a, you know, it's a, it's a irreversible decision. It's, it's a horrible and tough decision to make. And by saying things like, oh, it's selfish, that drives somebody away from help as opposed to having an open conversation and listening to what's going on with someone. We want, to, we want that person to come for help. And the language we use, even as family members, yes, or yes. maybe especially as family members, yes. can be helpful or damaging. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right, Jeff. I think it's um, it's the opportunities to help someone see the light are there. I think we often get stuck in our own daily life and we forget to look up and hear the people that are talking to us um, and to give them support. And, and when we hear someone, you know, making jokes or, or reinforcing stereotypes, taking the opportunity to really educate them on, on the consequences of, of continuing something like that and how their words can really hurt someone. And this last one, um, I think, is something that untrained individuals may believe because they just don't know any better. It, it's people that are talking about suicide will lead to and encourage suicide. Um, so I use this in my QPR 
trainings all the time because this is one of the myths and facts that we go over in that training. And um, I use my own story actually in this because when I first started as a therapist, I really was terrified to talk to someone about suicide and thought I would insult them by saying, um, well, are you thinking about suicide? Um, And that if I said that, they would then in turn well, maybe I should think about suicide. If my life is as bad as you think it is, then maybe I should go and think about suicide. Um, And that's absolutely not true. That's absolutely 110% not true. I learned very quickly that that wasn't true. Um, But it's also, you know, people, if you have a thought that someone might be at risk for suicide, there's a really good chance that they've already thought about it, that they... And maybe today they'll be a little bit annoyed that you brought it up or because they're really depressed and isolated, not knowing how to talk. Um, They might not love the conversation, but you're opening up that dialogue for future conversation. And you're, you're saying this is a safe place to talk about anything you need to talk about, including suicide. For people that have listened before, they've heard my dog barking at anyone that walks by the street. Um, so there she goes. She, she wants to be a part of it. Um, you know, those things are really important. Those myths are important to address um, because it gives people and our listeners kind of a different idea um, that they may have, have had. And we know how... Uh, information related to suicide will help somebody's confidence in prevention. So I I think it's important to address those. Um, Agreed. The World Health Association estimates that about a million million people each year in the world die by suicide. An overwhelming majority of people have difficulty difficulty grasping what drives a person to such drastic measures. We just talked about some of that. Can you talk a little bit about what these individuals may be experiencing emotionally to kind of provide some clarity to our listeners? Um, so this is, is a big question. I think um, there's a lot of different things that could lead someone to believe that their life is no longer worth living, that they have become such a burden. Um, some of the big risk factors are, you know, uh, a serious terminal illness, right? If you're, if you're diagnosed with a serious terminal illness, what does that mean for you and your family? Um, financial stress, um, being diagnosed with a, a serious mental illness, um, substance misuse, abusive relationships, bullying, you know, um, I really like to try to think about the fact that when someone's life has taken such a turn that they're not sure how to navigate it anymore. They look to any option to help alleviate some pain. And so if you're talking to someone um, or you see someone, you know, it's, it's like such great things have happened to them that they are not sure what to do anymore. They don't have the coping skills, all their normal walks. You know, this is why COVID has been such difficult time for people because all of our normal coping strategies are, are out the window. Um, so what are we doing to cope with these major thoughts and feelings and beliefs? Um, and, you know, the last option is no longer tolerating the pain. And that's when suicide come, becomes an option. So, um, you know, I think emotionally, these people are really distraught. And, and that looks different to each person. I think my, my version of distraught might be very different than yours. Um, but it's, it's a different from their baseline. So if normally I'm happy go lucky and I, I'm, you know, out there, 
Um, if I'm all of a sudden really isolated and not and, and cranky, then emotionally it's just very different than where I was at before. And, and that's an important thing. I know there's no real commonality, but but the underlying thing is such great emotional pain that yeah. they don't know what to do anymore. Yep. Yeah. Um, and and taking their life, it, I mean, it has become one of their only options. So it, it's the last option for any person. I've seen, and, and in my own family, my, my own brother uh, 30 years ago uh, took his life with an overdose. Oh. Um, and I had just been in the field a couple of years and he had been miserable, 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 miserable through most of the life. And then all of a sudden, something bad happened. And a few days later, he was fine with it. And I didn't realize that that was a change in behavior. I, yeah. um, I, I was too green and too fresh to know. And it's your family. So I had a different view of it. That that was a change that should have been addressed. You're right. I'm sorry for your loss. That's um, And you're absolutely right. I learned that as well early on in that when someone has kind of that peace about them after such a long time of instability and, and chaos, that that is a huge warning sign because they've likely made their decision up or they know what they're going to do. And then they're kind of saying their goodbyes. So, um, yeah. It was an eye opener um, to say that it's a change and it needs to be talked about. And it can be as simple as that having a conversation. Yeah. And then sometimes when people get better, you know, the, the fear is like, they have to grapple through like, what does this mean for the rest of my life too? You know, like how is this how I want to live the rest of my life too? I've seen both sides now. It's a very vulnerable time for sure. The sheer numbers of individuals who've taken their own lives kind of coupled with the increased rates of depression, anxiety, and substance use really related to what's happening um, with COVID-19 make it ser a very serious overall public health problem. Yeah. Being that it's a public health problem, which I think we can all agree to, we we all have a role to play in suicide prevention for our families, ourselves, and our community. Uh, um, a very effective intervention is QPR that you had mentioned earlier. Question, persuade, refer. Can you tell our listeners about what QPR is? Absolutely. So QPR, I, I love QPR. I've been doing QPR trainings for... Um, three and a half years now. And we actually offer QPR to every single new employee that comes through Bristol Hospital. So um, it's a lovely accomplishment on our end to be able to, to you know, spread this intervention. Um, but I'll digress. Um, so really it's an hour long training. It can go up to four hours long, um, but to really get most of what you need out of it, it's an hour long and it goes into a lot of the myths and facts about suicide. Um, and then it goes through what does someone who's at risk for suicide look like? So, and it's for anyone can use it. It does not have to be a mental health professional. It can be anyone. It's very simple. It makes a complicated subject very easy to talk about. Um, and then it goes through like four different types of warning signs. And then if you feel like someone's at risk, if you have that gut feeling, how do you ask them the suicide question? So how do you talk to someone about suicide? So it goes over some productive ways to talk about suicide, some least favorite ways to talk about suicide and ask them. Um, and then how do you persuade them to get to treatment? So how do you, so someone says, yes, I do want to kill myself. Then 
okay, what do I do with this information? How do I help them want to stay alive as well? And then where do I send them for treatment? So where do I refer them for treatment? Um, So it's QPR equates themselves to CPR a lot. um, And that before we knew how to do CPR, we had a lot of people dying in the field because they never received the life-saving intervention to get to the hospital or to get to someone that could help keep them alive. So QPR is very similar. It's a simple intervention that is applied in the field or in whatever setting you're in that can help keep them alive until they get to perhaps a therapist or a pastor or you know someone who can help keep them alive and, and come up with a, a more stable plan for them. I like the that you equated to CPR that it can be done by anybody who's trained. Yeah. Um, and it really pro it, it, uh, will kind of keep some of the suicidals up at bay until they can get into or at least keep that person safe until okay. they can see somebody who can who's really equipped to deal with the bigger picture. Well, and because you know it it really works because people have convinced themselves that um, there there's no hope left and that they're incredibly alone. And so if you can use the language provided in any type of training um, to be able to connect with them at that moment, that's huge. That's, that's, a, that's what saves lives. Um, and so a lot of times we don't say anything because we don't know what to say. So we avoid it or we get anxious about it. But if we're able to have the tools necessary to intervene, we can, we can tackle that conversation and get people help a lot earlier on in, in their recovery. It's one of the things that we're having conversations at the uh, board level about requiring that those that are certified as peer recovery specialists, adding that into a, a required uh, training before they can get certified. I have to say that. So I do this in general orientation, right? So it's the first day of someone's new employment um, and people are going into very different fields, right? So either they're going into like environmental services or they're going into accounting or they're going into payroll or, you know, so many different places. Um, And I kind of have to preface it with welcome to your first day of work and we're going to talk about suicide and here's why. (laughs) Um, But they all love it. You know, they really appreciate it. it. It makes a culture of we're going to talk about everything. We're going to connect around this. We're going to, we're going to do it. And, and it's been received really well. So if someone's going into recovery coach setting, I can only imagine that it would be even more well-received if that's um, because they're dealing with people in crisis all the time. So um, at all hours of the day and and to know that they have that skill set to support them would be amazing. And I think what's most important what we talked about is they're they're working alongside somebody in their own natural environment, whether it's in their home or in the community where they're doing something. So it's it's not a sterile environment. It's where everything is real. Yes. And and let's address it. And I think the confidence level um, for people would rise because we're giving them really important information. I'm, I was a case manager for years and in my car driving to the grocery store or to doctor's appointments is when I got the most information out of my clients. <laughs> um, that's really a special time. And to have those people have that skill set would be really great. I worked in a pre-release program for violent offenders um, that was residential. And after group and everything at night, I would play dominoes with some of the guys. And yeah. the information that I got uh, yeah. playing dominoes 
about them um, yeah. was in a way they thought was just amazing. Yeah, it's invaluable. It's something you can't get. The anxiety of sitting in a session sometimes, especially at first, is too great to get some of that information out. So, um, yeah, I I would support you in that wanting all your recovery coaches or recovery coaches to have, if it's not QPR, then some sort of training. But QPR has been found to be like the shortest amount of time and the most powerful intervention. I mean, assist and, and other things exist too. It's just a little bit more time consuming, um, but they are very effective as well. So that leads into my next question. There is proof of effectiveness of QPR. Um, yeah, it's listed on um, the, the NAMI website as one of the um, evidence-based interventions. So it's been around for a long time. That's not an easy list to get on. And it, it basically, a lot of the studies show that um, clinicians, providers, layman term, you know, um, anyone who takes the course pre and post, they feel much more comfortable after taking it in assessing someone, in screening someone, not assessing someone, screening someone for suicide um, and how to have that conversation. Is it adaptable to to folks in different situations, say uh, veterans, first responders? um... Yes, absolutely. So um, even just the, the core of the training is, is very generic, but QPR itself has taken that core and adapted it to, I looked it up the other day. So they look, um, youth, elderly, school, emergency responders, um, farmers, and then school health professionals. So they've really taken it and, and tried to target a different audience based on some of their needs too. And so to learn about that, what was that website that you said you looked it up from? uprinstitute.com. Uprinstitute.com. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So we'll make sure that we add that to our resource list as well. So anyone can take, they call it the gatekeeper course. So I'm an instructor, but anyone who leaves a QPR training becomes a gatekeeper, they call it. Um, and that is, I think, $29.99 on that uprinstitute.com. So anyone can take the gatekeeper course. It's an hour-long online course that you can take. So, um, or you can look for, you can put in your area code and look for local presentations that are happening. It's really exciting to me that that non-clinical individuals uh, can learn the skills to help prevent suicide using QPR. And I really hope that we can get some people to take advantage of those opportunities uh, to learn. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about suicide training for the SUD counselors that we certify at the CCB. What are some resources that professionals can access to increase their knowledge, skills, and abilities? Because to me, it's always about KSAs, knowledge, skills, and abilities, you know, and which would to help increase their confidence when working with suicidal individuals. Um, so on a state level, the Zero Suicide Initiative is an excellent forum to get involved in. So they have a learning community um, and COVID has changed a little bit because it used to be in-person two hour long events every month that were held in Middletown. Um, A lot of it's become more remote. So that's nice to have extra options to it. Um, But you can even just join their listserv and get on different emails that come out and help people to see what other places are struggling with and and questions that they have. Um, So that's a wonderful resource. Um, There are a lot of online 
you know, I think it depends to be honest with you, what someone's struggling with. So if is the person struggling with like where to connect the, the client to for services, um, you know, two one one is a wonderful avenue for any of that information. Um, and they usually carry the most up-to-date information. If they're looking to increase their professional knowledge about how to intervene with um, any of their clients, then I would really recommend any CBT type stuff. So CBT has been proven to be wildly effective with helping someone reduce their thoughts of suicide. Um, and then again, just this zero suicide you can go on and, and go through all the different resources um, and and look at what some options might be. Excellent. Uh, Lisa, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, it's, it's something that needs to be talked about more, kind of normalize it within the field so that people get better. Um, yeah. And I hope that somehow we've motivated individuals you know, kind of to, to learn more to increase their comfort level. Thank you for having me. And thanks for taking the time to spread um, you know, the message about this. I really um, believe in combining the two that we can't separate suicide and substance use anymore. It's we're really missing the boat if we continue to do that. So thank you for spreading the word. It's, it's really just, uh, in my opinion, the next step from years ago when we started talking about co-occurring disorders as, as being much more common um, and putting treatment together and treating the whole person, that I think this is a natural outgrowth of it that we have to address as well. I've been fortunate to do a couple of um, Narcan and QPR trainings that um, like through the state they've been um, promoting. So we're making some progress. <laughs> so it's exciting to see and be a part of. There's always progress to be, to be made no matter you know what we do. So we like, you know, we like training. We like other, you know, learning opportunities. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Lisa Coates for joining us, and I really want to express our uh, our gratitude to Bristol Health and to the Counseling Center for allowing her to take the time to talk with us. Um, and I have the hospital always has a special place in my heart because I worked there yeah. um, many years ago. Not in 1988, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we appreciate everyone who is listening, and don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. Until next time, everybody. Bye.